Welcome to the Flourishing Pastor Podcast. You hear a lot about this idea of flourishing, but if you're a pastor or if you lead a nonprofit or business, it's fair to ask what flourishing actually looks like for you and for your work. Here's the reality. Flourishing for individuals and for churches alike is about far more than leadership tips or strategic plans. Instead, when we read in the scriptures that King David shepherded the people of Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, part of what we're reading is a dynamic, multi-layered framework in which both leaders and those they lead can flourish. I'm Aaron Klein-Hanbury, and over the course of 10 conversations, pastor and author Tom Nelson and I will look at what he calls the lost art of shepherd leadership and how recovering it can help leaders and the work they lead flourish. My name is Michael Roop, and I serve as the lead pastor at Creekside Community Church in Gainesville, Florida. So I'm very blessed to have been on the receiving end of a transition process into this lead pastor role that succeeded much less because of our planning, although there was a lot of that, and much more because of the humility and the care of the outgoing lead pastor. He was in that role for 12 years, and from day one, it was obvious that he was organizing his life, his spread of responsibility, and really even the staff makeup of the church in such a way that his transition out of the role would be as seamless and um, gentle for the church as possible. It's very daunting to look forward from where I'm at and to think through the question of what does it mean to finish well. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think I wouldn't think as much about that about that topic or that question as I probably should. I'm 34 years old. Lord willing, I've got decades of ministry ahead of me, many more than are, are behind me. And it can be tempting to sort of put my head down into the programs of the church or the a visible success of the church and focus on the metrics of how many people are coming and how many new givers do we have and how many people are being baptized. And all of these are important things. But at this stage in my ministry career, Lord willing, um, early stage in my ministry career, it's very easy to get lost in, in the day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year efforts of the church and not give attention to the kinds of things that will um, not guarantee that I'll finish well, but will will definitely lend themselves to a better finish. There are three categories emerge from Psalm 78, verse 72. This idea of shepherding and being shepherded. This idea of integrity of heart. And this idea of skillful hands, that is being fruitful in our work. Today, we're going to discuss where all three of these come together, and that is in how leaders finish well, finish their work well, and ultimately finish their lives well. Not to be too foreboding, but talking about finishing well, of course, is uh, Tom Nelson, who is here now. Hey, Tom. Hey, Aaron. Great to be with you. Tom, there's a jarring reality Mm -hmm. when you read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, these character stories, all these figures in the scriptures, where it seems like 
Many of the men we hold up as heroes and who are presented as heroes don't end their stories as heroes, mm-hmm. or at least they don't end them heroically. Iconically, we can think of, of King David and Bathsheba and the fallout from his children right. and how those things yeah. just went so poorly. What are we supposed to do as we encounter these stories? The scriptures are given to us, again, for encouragement and instructions, right? So I think uh, the Old Testament texts particularly invite us into that story that is uh, indicative of the human heart that is truly <laughs> a mixed bag, right? So for example, you know, we talk a lot about King David and David had his deep highs, but his deep lows. But another example, I think, that really is indicative of, of the difficulty of finishing well is King Asa. And if you remember many of the kings, but King Asa is a classic example. I mean, he starts out with an amazing commitment to God and reform and everything else. And then as he gets further in his journey, he begins to uh, compromise. Uh, he rejects the advice of his uh, counselors, which is really typical. He loses his sense of teachability, right? And openness to correction. This is very typical of us as we get older. We think we've got it all figured out and we can't learn from others. He also has a physical malady. You remember that? Like he has issues with his feet. And, and that's not incidental to the biblical text because when we have physical decline and issues, things begin to take place in terms of our life. Uh, and he also uh, compromises in doing the right thing. So I'm just saying in, in that text, uh, in Second Chronicles, King Asa, like King David, uh, the core idea there is that their hearts that are holy gods at a certain season of their life are not as they get further down the road. There's diversion, distraction, uh, a sense of uh, subtle idolatry, fear, lots of things that are corrosive in that uh, undivided loyalty to God. And in Second uh, Chronicles, one of the dynamics about Asa, which is so instructive, the chronicler says, looking at Asa's life as he got older, his heart wasn't holy God's. That was the core, right? And so that text says, the eyes of the Lord, look to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly his. So in all that complexity of the difficulty of finishing well, at the core, the biblical author says, the core idea is a heart that's wholly his mm-hmm. or not wholly his. And that relates specifically to this theme we've been discussing over and over about integrity of heart and being the center point of that Psalm 78, 72. And when we talk about heart, this is why it's so important. And it's often said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. At the very uh, bottom line of our flourishing, what David says what he models and does not model is a heart that's not holy God's, right? David is viewed as a man for God's own heart. King Asa, his heart's not wholly devoted to God. So somehow in that mystery of all the different complexities of our life, the core idea that the scriptures say, the most important thing to lead, to flourish and to finish well is the continuity of a heart that's wholly his. There's no undivided loyalty, no dilution of devotion, Uh, that we see in the heart of a leader. As you say, we encounter these in the scriptures, these stories directly from the Bible. We see this also in Christian history. We see this in, we see this in the life of figures like Martin Luther, who said some of his most unsavory, ungodly things toward the end of his life. Uh, Figures who are contemporaneous with us, who at the end of their ministries do things, say things, go pat down paths that seem out of alignment with what we at least knew of them in the past. Why is this 
work of finishing well so elusive, particularly if, as you describe it, the problem itself is relatively simple? Well, the problem at the very core is, right, a heart that's not wholly his. But finishing well is very difficult. And there are many factors as we get older that cause us to stumble. You know, we talk a lot about youthful uh, sin, right? There's in a season of life, youthful lust and that kind of thing. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the unique sins of getting older, the unique challenges of getting older. And I think that's a real miss for us because what happens in the seasons of a person's life is that some of, I'll use the language, some of the weeds in the garden of the soul that haven't been tended early on begin to flower. Uh, begin to show themselves in deep ways. So sometimes it's not just a burst of doing something stupid. You know, like I always pray, Lord, keep me from being stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't, can Lord keep me from doing something really stupid? Uh, but often these are untended dynamics in the heart of a leader, in the life of a leader that over time become really noxious weeds in the soul. And you also deal with inevitably matters of discouragement, disillusionment, in the areas of uh, unfulfilled dreams, for example, Mm -hmm. broken relationships, heartache, suffering, the corrosive nature of cynicism. Uh, These are things that work in the soul, often of a leader. And the longer you walk, the longer you live, the more pronounced they become and often the more compromising they become in the heart and mind of a leader. What are some of the weeds that perhaps pastors in their 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, maybe aren't tending right now or aren't aware are on the cusp of flowering? One of the most important weeds I don't think we deal with is inevitably the weeds of pride. Now, Lewis talks about, the pride is the ultimate vice. And I think pride finds its kind of morphing in our lives at different seasons. So what I think is probably most pronounced, at least in my own experience, is the weeds of pride began to blossom around the corrosive nature of a lack of teachability, a lack of curiosity, a lack of accountability to others. Uh, These kind of realities are played out increasingly in the life of a leader. Often as a leader grows, they have more power and influence, right? And they become untouchable. Uh, they become unapproachable. Uh, They have more blindness about their own power dynamics, their own ego strokes and things like that. So uh, that's where I would say at the very core, it's pride. It just finds its tributaries in different ways. And pride grabs us to different seasons, different ways. So I would say at the very core of that is a lack of continuing to clothe ourselves with humility. And that's one of the greatest themes in Jesus' life, right? But in all the New Testament is to clothe ourselves with humility. And that's never more important. I mean, it's important when we're young, but it's never more important when we're at the zenith of our career, (laughs) right? Or our power influence. Uh, And I think also one of the things that's uh, sobering is that many leaders uh, forget the fear of God. Right? They forget the audience they lived before and they forget their accountability before God. They also forget the incredible shrapnel that occurs as they have more power and influence. That shrapnel is much more pervasive and dangerous and damaging to people around them, to the witness of Christ, to the gospel, to the kingdom, 
the further they are down the road. Uh, so again, if I really screw up when I'm 25, that's a terrible thing, right? I mean, I have impact, whether it's moral or whatever, but if I'm 65 and 70, have a long history of leadership that seems impeccable and in its integrity, and then I melt down, the impact of that is multiplied a hundredfold. Uh, so I do think there is a sense of forgetting where you are and that you will stand before God and give an account for everything you've said and done. And I think we lose that fear of God in a proper way. What does it mean to finish well? And by that, I don't mean the characteristics of finishing well, but are we talking about death? Are we talking about retirement from a specific vocation? Well, finishing well, I do think, involves uh, the humble, courageous, wise, decisive uh, commitment to good succession. Succession is something a leader builds from the very beginning. I mean, we started Christ Community 30 some years ago. We were thinking about succession then and building a team and building a pipeline of leaders who could uh, receive the baton from me and others. So succession really matters for a leader. We should be thinking about that all the time and building a team. So I'm in that stage with uh, the church I serve and we're very thoughtful. We're talking about it. We have a plan. Uh, we're seeking the Lord on it. We're getting input. So yes, finishing well our particular paid service to a church or to an organization is hugely important. But that involves a daily preparation and also letting go. One of the things that I think is so important, and I even use this example often with people is to have open hands. I literally open my hands. My life is open hands. I have an open hand about the organization I serve, the people who are, uh, I serve with. My whole life is not clenched hands, it's open hands. My possessions, right, all that. So I have the metaphor of open hands and I'm not grabbing for more power. Actually, I'm empowering others. I'm being generative. So in terms of our work or our paid work, I think finishing well our organization involves really good succession. But in, in terms of our whole, whole life, I love the picture of Caleb in the Old Testament, right? Because in one sense, he's kind of done doing his gig. But he says, there's still hill, hill country to climb. Uh, and uh, give me some more opportunity to honor you and make a difference. I see people who are in retirement, if we want to call that, or they're not doing their paid gig, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it, who are not just sitting around doing nothing. Uh, they're not just self-indulgent. They're deeply committed to use their gifts, their energies, their wisdom to continue to honor God and build his kingdom. And I love Caleb's attitude. Give me the whole country. You know, I still have something left. Mm -hmm. Now, again, it looks different as you get older. And one of the sad things is when people hold on too long, right? The power of an organization, you know, they don't leave in time, right? They just kind of cling to it. But there are new chapters and new opportunities. And I wanna deepen my love for Jesus, continue to impact the kingdom for him until my dying breath. And I'd love to die with my boots on if I could choose, right? I mean, like, but it will look different as I get older in terms of my energy and my health and my focus but I really want to finish well. And I think that's gonna look differently, uh, but I'm hopeful that I can do that with God's help and other people around me that will help me. The pastor of the church that I'm a part of says regularly that he thinks one of the most vital and untapped blocks in our congregation and in other congregations is 60 year olds. He said, you have this group of people with the most money Incredible they've ever had, wisdom. often the most money they've ever had, often the most time they've ever had. And yeah, tend to be the most under-leveraged when it comes to church activity. And I would say, I think that's exactly right. Demographic tells us this, but part of this is the residual impoverishment of the American dream or the idea that we work really hard. One of my friends used to say, 
you know, we work as hard as we can, save all we can, and then we sit on our can. <laughs> yeah. And again, retirement, if we call it that, whatever, I, I like a kind of re-engagement, that new chapter, it should be a bit of a different pace, right? It should have a different rhythm, but it's not about self-indulgence. And in fact, many people who go into that sort of self-indulgent model really wither. They actually lose their health and their vitality because we were created to contribute so the opportunity to contribute with wisdom, mentoring, I mean, hack to me, if you're healthy, you know, physically and mentally healthy, is incredibly important for the individual and for the kingdom and the church. So we have an incredible opportunity, demographically, missionally, to reimagine what life is like post full-time paid gig work. Uh, and so, yes, I think this is a huge area. And it's a blindness because this is, there's generational wisdom. How do we tap into that? Christians often report that their churches don't prepare them for the pressures, opportunities, or challenges of their daily work. At Made to Flourish, we call this the Sunday to Monday gap, an unhealthy divide that can blur our understanding of God's work in the world, work we're meant to join. To help close that gap, we want to give you a collection of practical, theological books that we mail directly to you, completely free of charge. In this free box, you'll also get a copy of the latest issue of the award-winning Common Good magazine and, for a limited time, Tom Nelson's book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. So whether you're a pastor or layperson, visit madetoflourish.org box to get the box for free and start closing the gap between Sunday and Monday. That's madetoflourish.org box. There's a dynamic in our culture that has probably been a dynamic in every culture. But for whatever reason, uh, there's a fascination right now with talking about these generational labels and characteristics and the ways in which we interact with each other. So baby boomers are always talking about Gen X, who are always talking about <laughs> both boomers and then the millennials, and nobody likes Generation <laughs> X. And uh, political commentary goes there. Voting statistics go there. Church leaders constantly talk about reaching this generation or that generation. And some of that, I think, is just overplayed analysis, in my opinion. But there are certain realities. There's expectations. There's dynamics that are happening. And the ways in which people who are members of certain generations interact is not always as comfortable. One of the things that happens as pastors age, necessarily, is their congregation is filled with people who are different from them. <laughs> what is that like for you as you sort of have navigated leading churches where the majority of the membership is older than you, then they're about your peers, and then maybe you're on the older side. How does that shift your leadership? I think it is an important recognition of the diversity, generational diversity. And we talk about the goodness and challenges of all kinds of diversity. But we are shaped in powerful ways by sort of the generation which we've come of age. Uh, and I think we can overplay it. But I also think it's instructive to understand how a generational timestamp shapes how we see the world. Let me just give one example. I work a lot with younger generational leaders because that's an intentional structure in our local church. And I have people who are older than me that I listen to and learn from and people younger than me that I'm learning and listening to. For example, we had a conversation, classic example as a church about racial injustice and the importance of addressing that. And I think across the generations, there's a sense that that is important. How people understand that and the way forward sometimes is different. So 
when a younger generation, you know, in my context, begins to properly critique some of the failures of our nation, what I discovered, again, is the generation above them are not uh, immune or indifferent to proper critique, but because many of them have lost friends, like in the Vietnam conflict or on a war, or people who have given their life for the country, whether shed their blood, whether it's right or wrong or whatever, many of the older generation heard that conversation by younger generation as disrespect or a lack of patriotism. The critique was heard differently in a different generation where they knew people on the Vietnam wall. I mean, I, I have a cousin, I have friends that died in Vietnam. So generation is a boomer who went through that tumultuous time. I process that a bit differently. So I'm just saying in a multi-generational team, like at Christ Community, the church I serve, it's really valuable for all generational leaders to talk through how do we communicate this issue or this matter biblically, appropriately, and how are our generations gonna hear that differently? What tone do we need to use? What dynamics? So I'm just giving one example mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I see different generational dynamics, but how important it is not to be in a tunnel or tone deaf to the different generations as we communicate and lead a multi-generational congregation. That, that is really beautiful, but it needs attention. So that's certainly a societal shift, right? As different age groups come and have different experiences. I'm the 9-11 generation, so everything is a flashpoint in and around September 11th, 2001 uh, for us. Other things happen on a global scale that affect things in our church or affect things at the church level. So I can imagine a pastor who follows a trajectory of seminary, whatever church experience, pastors a church, reaches whatever that power band of his or her career is, gets on the latter half of that arc, and things look like they're smoothly sailing into retirement, whether that's traditional American retirement or on the mission field or just working in a different season. However, something like a pandemic happens and <laughs> upends what you know, what you thought you knew, and certainly what the present and future might look like. I've never experienced uh, a global pandemic in all the dynamics in my 30, almost 35 years, I've never experienced what we've experienced in a recent time of a global pandemic. And so in any leadership context, this is true in corporate world, this is in education. I mean, all of us, especially in the early days of the pandemic, were what I would call in a massive free fall of uncertainty. I mean, we were just in places we've very rarely been. In fact, I right away went to people who are 90 years old plus, and ask them, what did you learn in your past? Have you seen anything like this? Many of them hadn't, right? So I'm just saying we recognize, we need to recognize wherever we are, and certainly for me as a little bit older in my work, you know, I'm on the, on the other side of it, um, that we are in a season that's unusual. And so we need to recognize what we would call in an economic sense, a black swan. This is a very unusual reality. We've never been here before, most of us at least living, We really don't know what the future holds. And so how do we respond to that? And there are many things that we have learned in a free fall of uncertainty. Leaders every now and then face that. Some leaders never face that in their lifetime. That kind of massive uncertainty with all the implications in terms of social isolation, economic lockdowns. I mean, all this stuff is unusual. So I think what's really important for a servant leader in that context is first to recognize they're in a black swan, even though they've never been there before, that this is a very different dynamic. And then how do you navigate it? There are three or four things I think are really important in a black swan. 
Number one is to recognize it. You know, you have to get a sense, hey, wow. I remember when March Madness shut down. I mean, I know exactly where I was. It was kind of like 9-11. Mm-hmm. When March Madness tournaments were stopped, like everything stopped. I've never seen it like that before and go, oh my, we're in another place. Mm-hmm. So recognize that you're in a black swan. And then I think what you do is you realize that you have to build endurance because it's gonna be a long haul. And so I encourage our team, rather than more activity, rather than increasing our pace, we actually had to slow down. We had to build resilience physically, spiritually, mentally, and then to draw on timeless wisdom rather than trying to find more information and data points for scenario planning, for example. So in a black swan, if a leader faces that, they have to, first of all, build their own resiliency. And that requires self-care, the kind of sense that are going to allow you to navigate with hope, confidence, humility, and prayer, a very uncertain terrain. And that's played out in the last couple, three years. This is just conjecture on my part. But I would imagine part of the obstacle to finishing well as a pastoral leader, as a leader in any context, is that if you view your life in the general arc of a story, your big tension point is not toward the end. (laughs) Uh, The coasting, the happy scenes from Lord of the Rings are at the end. Now, Lord willing, you're nowhere near the end of your work. (laughs) I don't know that. I have heard you say several times, uh, talking in the Mm -hmm. years 2021 and 2022, that they've been very difficult seasons for reasons related to COVID-19. Extremely difficult. And other various pressures and aspects that are going on. How do you handle that as someone who has gone these 30 plus years of, of doing ministry and what I would assume presumes that the hard part is a bit behind you? How do you interact with new, different, and increasing challenges? Well, you don't do it alone. And again, I think that's the really important part of leadership, that you're a part of a community, that you put on your listening ears. You interact with one another. Uh, you look for people that have great wisdom because the, the danger uh, is to look for more information rather than go back to wisdom. The danger is to look too much ahead in these kind of seasons rather than look back. Mm. Not in living in the past, but gaining wisdom from the past. So I think it's really, really important in these times that are extremely hard because what has happened in most leaders and many leader contexts, you're in catch-22s all the time. No matter what you do, you tick people off, right? You don't, you've never been here before. There's not an easy road ahead. There's not a safe road ahead but you have to have the courage to do what you think is best at the time and then be able to be flexible and pivot and be humble to say, hey, you know, we got that wrong. Let's switch here. So it tests your faith. It tests your resiliency. It tests your courage. And most important, you have to stay tethered to Christ. You have to seek wisdom of scripture. Um, You have to take care of yourself in the right sense to build resiliency. Like in these seasons, I have increased my exercise. I've increased my spiritual disciplines. I have a small group of people, including my wife, that I really connect with because isolation is dangerous, right? Um, and it's really, really important to stay hopeful. Not, not in a utopian optimism. That's not, this is a hard time with your team. This is a hard time. We're all struggling, but we're gonna get through this together. Uh, fascinating, you know, the Stockdale paradox that Jim Collins talks about, that in the Vietnam era, when... The POWs in Hanoi and the Hanoi Hilton, what an interesting combination. The ones that survived were the ones that dug in for the long haul. The ones that gave up hope kept saying, we're gonna be out by Christmas. 
right? And they weren't out by Christmas. So in a pandemic, and we're still, right now, as we record this, we're still dealing with some of the, we don't really know if we're totally out of it. I mean, it's been That's forever. Right. And if we thought it was only gonna be six months, right? And we banked on it, man, that is just brutal. So we need to have a sense this may go on for a long time, whatever this black swan, whatever these t- tough times are, but we're gonna get through it with God's help. God's gonna give us, you know, just, well, we have a longer term perspective. And I think that Stockdale paradox is those who realize that they may be in this for the long haul. We're the ones that had the endurance and hope and strength to finish and to get through this difficult time. The ones who had a false expectation of short term, right? Are the ones that lost hope and caved in. At the end of your book, The Flourishing Pastor, you deal with this theme of finishing well. And you introduce three metaphors that you see as reminders to help leaders finish well. And these reminders are for leaders at any stage of their career. Yes. Keeping yes. the finishing well uh, goal in mind. Those metaphors are seeing leadership as a battleground, as a marathon, and as a sacred trust. Let's talk about those. Yeah, those metaphors are biblical metaphors that the Apostle Paul gives in 2 Timothy, I think it's 4.7, to Timothy. As Paul is ready, as far as we know in tradition, he's going to be executed in Rome. He knows his time, right? His departure is near. So we tend to think, right, of last words of being really important, don't we? I mean, we think about when someone's dying, we log on to their last words of hope and wisdom and love. So Paul is saying to Timothy, right? These these are my last words to you, Timothy. I'm not gonna see you again this side of heaven. So what do I wanna remind you of? What's most important, right? When, When someone is dying, their last words capture who they are and what's most important to them usually, right? So Paul uses these three metaphors. He says, I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, right? That's his picture. So the metaphors capture the idea of an athletic metaphor, for example, right? I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. So these metaphors capture a picture of how a leader is to understand their journey. One is a marathon, not a sprint, right? A race metaphor that we need to pace ourselves. This is why hurriedness and distraction is so uh, perilous to the leader. That's why Dallas Willard has said famously, right? We eliminate hurry in your life at all costs. He understood the danger of a pro- improper pace or distraction. So in a marathon, right, you have to have the right pace. You can start out fast, but if you don't have a sustainable pace, you'll never end, you'll burn out. So Paul uses that language, right? But he also has the language of, I have kept the faith, right? And the language there is a stewardship language, right? That my life is a stewardship, And it's almost like a banking metaphor, a a money metaphor that you've been entrusted with certain resources and now you're gonna give them back to God, but you need to be a good steward of that. So these ideas of metaphors help us understand, I think really three truths that are really important. And that is that life is a battlefield, not a playground, right? This is not frivolous. It's something uh, that we have to deal with uh, intensely. We also have the sense that life is a marathon, not a sprint, and that life is a sacred trust. It's not something for us to squander. And, and this is what I think Paul is saying. Remember, it's a battle, right? You have an adversary, right? Uh, there's a military sort of theme here. There's also an athletic theme and a banking theme. So I think they're helpful for us to keep in mind wherever we are in our leadership, because as Jim Collins reminds us, and also Stephen Covey, that we live our life with our end in mind, 
right? Uh, Covey says, we begin with the end in mind. And so wherever we are in our leadership journey, we need to have our eye on the finish line. And you don't decide to finish well at the end of finishing. You decided at the beginning and your life patterns reflect that goal of finishing well. You also mentioned in The Flourishing Pastor, in, in the chapter dealing with finishing well, two other threats to finishing well, which is to say two other things to be on guard about for those who are looking to finish well. What are those? Well, these are really more common and probably more of a threat to most of us. First of all, I use the language of restless rooftops. And I want to take that from David's life because it's so instructive. When you read the text about David's meltdown, morally, I mean, he does the unimaginable with Bathsheba. The picture, actually even the Hebrew grammar, is that he's pacing back and forth not only is he not, is he out of discipline of what kings did in the spring, right? That's how he enters. He's out of his rhythm and discipline. So he's he's bored, he's indisciplined. And as he's pacing back and forth, he sees Bathsheba. So the context where lust and other things grab him is a context of pacing back and forth out of his discipline, out of his pattern, out of his accountability, right? Out of his guardrails. And it is that space where he's incredibly vulnerable. And each of us is very vulnerable that way too. So one of the dynamics, especially as you get older, further down your leadership journey, is a restlessness. You know, we, we talk about dangers of a young leader, and there can be that, right? An experience, lust, different kind of things that can just mess him, up, mess him or her up. But one of the things we don't talk a lot about is the corrosive nature of restlessness, a sort of boredom a sense of distraction, a sense of unfulfillment, uh, a sense of loss of dreams or loss of youth, trying to recover that. We talk about midlife crises mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. This is a part of that middle-aged to older dynamic. And what I think is really important for a leader to understand there can be a restlessness of our soul, a boredom, uh, a longing for the old, a rush that we feel alive. And that can lead us to the most incredibly damaging decisions that damage us, damage our leadership, and damage so many people. So we don't talk much about these kind of realities because they're more subtle, but under the waterline of a leader's life, they're often at play and they create the greatest havoc. Mm. And you can certainly see, as we've talked a few times now about these perilous paths, the ways in which maybe visionary leadership or certainly the Lone Ranger leader, the way these paths into other spaces that you've described as being lost feed into this. Uh, when you get to those places of untouchability where your accountability exactly. for what you're doing during the day is unquestionable. And travel, you know, one of the dynamics, I actually did some doctoral work on this many years ago, but travel is a, a dynamic that has its positives and negatives. Travel itself creates this space of anonymity. And I use the language frequent travel, frequent temptation. Now that is true when you're younger, it's not like that can't happen when you're younger. But imagine a more mature leader who's had a lot of success or influence or whatever. Often that leads to travel, more travel, right? To And, and good motivations. But it's in that travel space when we're disconnected from our family, when we have anonymity, when that boredom, distraction, those restless rooftops are often in a hotel room. So those are black swan type events and what you've called these restless rooftops. There's a third uh, threat that by nature is unexpected. What is that? Yeah, I love the rogue wave piece because when I was in Mendocino, California a while back, there's these signs on the beach, uh, watch out for rogue waves. 
They're actually called sneaker waves. And I love that metaphor. And the idea there was the sign, watch out for these waves and don't turn your back on the ocean. It's the idea that out of the blue, ocean, the waves can be really predictable and unthreatening. And you think that's always the way it's going to be, sort of the status quo, right? You know how to handle this. You've seen it coming before. Everything's good. And completely out of the blue, this massive wave comes and knocks you over. In fact, in the ocean, it actually kills people a ton. So this picture, I think, is a picture of leadership that on a Monday morning, for example, when you walk into your office or you're on a Zoom call or whatever you're doing, you have no idea what that day is going to bring in your life. And, And it may be something completely you never planned for, you never expected, and you can't prepare for it. But how do you respond to it? For example, one of your great leaders uh, comes to you and confesses their moral compromise. And you go, oh, the whole world changes, right? They have visibility in your organization. You're going to have to do all this. You care for them. They're broken, but they have to, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Something you never saw coming is a rogue way that knocks you over and has great impact on you and the organization you serve. So rogue waves can really profoundly compromise your leadership, discourage you. And I don't think there's probably anything in my history where I've wanted to quit more when a rogue wave hit me and overwhelmed me. So we need to be prepared for those. We need to be ready for those. We need to build resiliency and depth in times when there's no rogue wave so we can handle that rogue wave, stand with humility and courage and work through it. But often these wipe us out. Yeah, I love the proper and literal warning, but also the metaphor of don't turn your back to the ocean. You just never know when that's coming. And leaders have to realize that's their Monday world. Tom, as you think about finishing well, is there an example? Is there a a leader who you look to and want to model uh, your finishing after? There is, and there's probably a handful of them that I watch and listen to and learn. But I would say one of the greatest privileges of my life was to know Dallas Willard personally. Uh, there's few people who have impacted my life more than Dallas. And when Dallas Willard often spoke or was with a group of pastors or leaders, I loved his prayer because his prayer was, Lord, help these men to have a radiant life and a radiant death. And Dallas modeled that. Um, in his last hours, uh, Dallas Willard uh, faced death with great poise and great expectation. And I love his last recorded words, those who are with him. His last recorded words was, thank you. And I, I think that's the picture of thanking his God and having a spirit of gratitude as he entered eternity. I watched Dallas Willard up close, learned a ton from him. Uh, as any human being, Dallas was not a perfect person. But Dallas really was perhaps the most brilliant person I've ever known and the most Christ-like person I've ever known, both heart and mind. And uh, his influence in my life and his modeling and his thought probably have encouraged me more in terms of a living person. Now, there are other people who are with the Lord now that have really modeled that as well that I've learned from. And I'm still trusting God to finish well, uh, whatever that is. I mean, I don't know my days, right? But um, that is still my goal. And I continue to realize how difficult it is 
even in God's grace and empowerment to finish well. There are many temptations and challenges and distractions as we get older, as we near the finish line. I wanna cross the tape well, um, but it is a daily obedience. It's a daily uh, focus in my life. Over the course of our conversations, we've been talking about Psalm 78, 72 repeatedly, and in particular, these three aspects that arise from, from that verse and from the larger chapter as well as it relates to David's life. And that is these aspects of shepherding, of integrity of heart, and of skillful hands, fruitfulness as you've described it. This idea of finishing well, of concluding your work, even if it means re-engaging a different work a little later, uh, is unique in that it marries and intertwines all three of those aspects. Can you describe that dynamic? I think even in David's life, we have hints. So David had highs, like Goliath, you know? And then he has the deepest lows of Uriah and Bathsheba, right? Just like, and the consequences for his family. But it's interesting in the biblical text, at the end of his life, there are hints that actually he finished well. So it encourages me, it encourages me that his heart was back fully devoted to God and there are actions that he takes and things he doesn't do that I think at least is a hint that he finished well. So when I'm saying, I'm really encouraged by that because David had his highs and lows and in any leader's life, we're, gonna, we're not gonna do this perfectly. But I think it's not perfection, but it's a devoted heart to God that continues throughout all of life that helps us finish well. So in Psalm 78, 72, we have this historical overlay looking at his whole life as an example. And it doesn't minimize his deep lows, his compromise, but it shows the landscape of his entire life that is guided on those three ideas, a shepherding kind of paradigm of leadership, how he understands his calling and role as a king that honors God. And then the integrity of his heart. Several of his Psalms keep talking about the integrity of my heart, the integrity mm-hmm. of my heart. And then the skillful hands that flow out of that. So I think when I think about finishing well, when a leader thinks about finishing well, having an integral understanding of our calling as a leader, as a shepherd, continuing to focus on the depths and integrity of our heart and continue to refine our skills of leadership, including our own leadership of ourself, is really a remarkable roadmap to finishing well. Our conversation today was shaped in large part by Tom's work in his book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. You can, and I think should, get the book on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, or wherever it is you buy books. Tom is the senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City and the president of Made to Flourish, which you can learn more about at madetoflourish.org. These conversations have been made better and polished and hopefully enjoyable by our friends in Nashville at Sound On Studios. Studios.